Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. Every single statement Jesus made was evidence that he never lost focus of the mission God had called him to accomplish. In Luke 19, chapter 10, it tells us this. It tells us this. It says that that Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. And every single time we see Jesus making a, a statement from the cross, it's always pointing back to that mission. He never deviated from the task. If, if there's ever a point where, where there could have been uh, just kind of some, some, some mercy where we're like, man, you know what, Jesus, you, you can lose sight. Like even on the cross, he was so focused on the mission that God had called him to accomplish. So we're spending time looking at the words for the reason of of, of this. We believe that when we look at the cross, it makes Easter that much more glorious. When we spend time and look at the, at the rugged, the, some would even dare say the grotesque nature of the cross, it allows the beauty, the vibrancy of resurrection to, to become that much more highlighted. So we're simply spending time just, just looking at the contrast there. Uh, because how many of you know this, that, that when you realize the cost, something Uh, a gift that you received, when you realize the cost that someone paid for that, you become much more thankful, unless it was a really cheap gift, and you're like, thanks a lot, buddy, right? but in those moments where, where I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was a, a, a child and I was able to go to my parents' house and just open up the fridge and eat all the food that was in there, um, I, I, was, I, I didn't appreciate that as much as I do now And I've got like toddlers who don't ever stop eating. And I'm just like, man, this is expensive. You guys are expensive to feed. And, and, it, and it wasn't until I was a parent myself and understood the cost they paid to feed me and, and two other boys, three boys in that house, like I never realized, man, I'm so thankful for that cost that they paid. The same is true of our salvation when we take time and look at the cost, the price Jesus had to pay to afford us the gift of freedom, the gift of of life, the the gift of salvation. When we see on the cross and we hear the words Jesus say, something inside of us should be peaked and elevated to say, you know what, Lord, I'm so thankful for that salvation. You didn't just give me a get out of hell free card. You purchased my entire life, and I'm so thankful for you, Jesus. Amen? So we've been spending some time looking at these words, and uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Luke chapter 23. In Luke's gospel, there are three words, and uh, we've been spending time just looking at those three. Uh, Next year, my plan is to look at the ones in John, so that'll give us six, and then there's two in Matthew and Mark's gospel, but we've only been looking at Luke, so there's three statements that we've looked at. Today is in Luke 23. Um, let Let me ask you this. Do you have a song that you listen to on, the, on your way to work? Is, is there a song that you, that you just like jam out to? Like, like this is your anthem that you listen to? Or maybe there's a phrase that, 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 you, that you say. Well, there was a, a time when I was in college, I was on a soccer team, and uh, we, we ended up coming up with a phrase that we ended up using before we'd get into every game. It was a phrase that uh, developed by one of the most eccentric kids I've ever met. There was this kid, um, in fact, I don't even know his name. I feel so bad. We played college soccer. I was a senior. He was a freshman. And uh, I, had, I had no idea what his name was because he was like one of the people that, um, maybe you have a friend like this where, where their nickname becomes their identity. And, and you don't even know their real name anymore. Like you only know them as their nickname. Um, I actually tried texting one of my friends and I'm like, hey, do you, do you remember this guy's name? Like his real name? And he's like, no, I, I only remember him by, by his nickname. And uh, his nickname was Little Boy Blue. Little boy blue. So, so we'd be like, uh, he, was a, he was a freshman, we were seniors, and, and I'm sure if we would have had more time together, we would have like got 
to know his name. But we, we loved this guy. We loved him. But we knew him as, as Little Boy Blue. And Little Boy Blue is a really cool kid. Um, he was from uh, Tennessee, and uh, he had a southern accent. But he had one of those southern accents that sound like you've been in pure puberty your whole life. Like, talk like this. Like, like, I'm not even kidding. Uh, and uh, the reason why he got the nickname Little Boy Blue, I promise there's, there's a point to this story. The reason why he got this, this story, Little Boy Blue, uh, is because uh, during tryouts, he came out, and he was an excellent soccer player. He was just from Tennessee, right, um, and super eccentric. Uh, he was homeschooled, which I'm not saying that is the reason why, but uh, let's just be honest. If you're homeschooled, there's one of two things that are going to happen. You're going to be like super normal and socialized, or you're going to be licking batteries. Like it's just it's one of two things. Like, uh, and, and unfortunately, little boy Blue from, from Tennessee was, was not, not, he was just eccentric. Um, anyway, he, he came out to tryouts his freshman year, and a coach broke us off into two groups. We had shirts and, and skins uh, one time, somebody said shirts and shorts, and we're like, "What? No, those are those aren't optional." But shirts and skins, right? And, and little boy blue ended up being on skins. He was on my team, and and uh, he takes off his shirt, and like to our surprise, we see the most ridiculous tan line, farmer's tan we've we've ever noticed. Like ridiculous. Um, it was overalls. He had overall tan line, so. In Tennessee, he's walking around in just overalls. Uh, the reason we knew they were overalls because you could see like the buckles like <laughs> on his chest. And uh, we, our, our coach was just cracking up, laughing. He's like, he's an African American guy from St. Louis. He's laughing. He's like, "Oh my, what's wrong with this guy?" Like just making fun of him. Like, what, "What's wrong with you?" He's like, "Sorry, coach, I, I, I fell asleep on a haystack." <laughs> and we're like, "What?" And, and, and then like he, the coach blows the whistle. Like everybody gets to go. Oh, we got to hear this story. He guys gathers everybody together. What do you mean you fell asleep on a haystack? He's like, yeah, coach, I was playing my trumpet and I fell asleep. And we're like, what? And everyone's dying laughing. And the coach looks at him and he's like, your new name is Little Boy Blue. You fell asleep playing your horn and stuff. And so that, that's how we got the name Little Boy Blue. But Little Boy Blue became one of like the, the team favorites. We loved him and, and uh, he was just super eccentric. Um, he Growing up, because he was homeschooled, he was only allowed to watch one of two things. Uh, uh, Little House on the Prairie. And uh, the second show was uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. That's the only things he was allowed to watch, Chronicles of Narnia and uh, Little House on the Prairie. And uh, one time, we, we, we got in a group, and, and we're, we're hyping each other up. Like, I was trying to get the team ready. Let's go, guys. Let's do this. And, uh, and, and, and uh, I looked over to Little Boy Blue because he was, like, extra hyped that day. And I'm like, all right, what are we going to say on three? And he's like, dead serious, for Narnia. And we're just like all right, man, for Narnia. So we're like, one, two, three. And he's like, for Narnia. And we're laughing. And I look over at little boy Blue, and he's dead serious. Like, he went out there to play soccer for Narnia. Well, that, that, that became our team's phrase for the rest of the year. My, my senior year, we would get in the circle, like hype everybody up, for Narnia. We'd go out and play soccer, and, and we did it because little boy Blue. Well, what is your phrase? What, 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 is, what is a phrase that you use? When I look at Scripture, and I, and I look at, at the phrase Jesus used to transition from life into death. I, I see that he had a final statement that he would say. There was a final statement that he made from the cross. Today we get an opportunity to read that phrase. And this is the, the triumphant phrase that Jesus makes for us. It's in Luke chapter 23. Let's go ahead and, and read this passage together. Luke 23 verse 44, it says this. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, and this is his triumphant statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And when he had said this, he breathed his last. This was Jesus's final statement, transitioning from life into death. He, he was upon the cross, and this was his, his, his triumphant, magnificent statement. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Verse 47, it says, the centurion, which was a Roman soldier, a leader in the Roman uh, military, a centurion seeing what, he, what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now notice something that Luke is doing here in this passage. So Christ breathed out his last, and there's three groups we're gonna see that took note of Jesus breathing out. A Roman centurion, verse 48 tells us this, when all the people, that's a second group, the people, Luke would use that phrase to, to, to specify the, the Jews or to generalize the Jews. These were all the Jews that were normally opposed to the message of Jesus. When all the people who had heard this gathered to witness the sight, saw what took place. They beat their breast and went away. Essentially, they just hit their chest as a sign of, of remorse, a sign of, of sorrow. But all those who knew him, now that's the third group, the ones that walked with Christ, when all the people, or verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. In this short passage, we see three groups that are gathered there. In fact, I would say there are five in total, five types of groups that are responding to the death of Christ. We have all of nature. The sun did not shine. We, we have the temple veil being torn, the, 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 the highest point of, of religiosity. And then we have those Gentiles, the Roman soldier, the Jews, and we have the followers of Jesus. Everybody in this scene is taking note of who just transitioned from life into death, who just breathed their last, and they all heard the cry of Christ. Let's start in, in, in the first verse. Now, everything, what I love to do is just take some time and, and set up the, the stage for us and look at verse by verse what is being said, what, what, is, what is Luke trying to, to convey to us. And, and look what is, what is said in, in the first verse, verse 44 there. It says this, it was now about noon, and, and Luke was very detail-oriented, so he was specifically saying at noon, the sun is usually at its highest, the sun is usually at its highest at noon, and at that same time, darkness came over the whole land. At this point, Christ had already been on the cross for three hours. They started the crucifixion at 9 a.m. It's now noon, and from noon until three, darkness covered the whole land. So for three hours, there was darkness over the entire land. And it says that the sun stopped shining. I think the point that we're trying to see here is that at noon, the sun is at its highest point, and yet on the day Jesus died, darkness came over the entire land. Now, what, what happened to the sun? Now, some have, have assumed that, uh, did the sun literally just, just go down? Did God do one of those like cosmic dowsing of a flame that he just like to the sun for three hours and then just relit it at three. No, uh, we don't believe, like one, scientifically, uh, it would have incredible ramifications if the sun went out for three hours. Um, uh, we, we believe that, that this was simply a, uh, the sun was not, was not visible, dense cloud cover. Um, there is something known as the Sirocco wind uh, in, in, the, in the ancient Near East, especially a dust from Africa. Would, would winds, would, strong winds would kick up dust in Northern Africa, cross the Mediterranean, and it was something that we 
could see. But regardless, I, I don't think the point that Luke is trying to make here is a scientific one. He's not trying to give evidence that, that there was even a solar eclipse. We know there wasn't a solar eclipse because Passover ap- always happened during a, a full moon, and it's impossible to have a solar eclipse during a full moon. So, so I don't think the point is, 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 is why it happened. I'm sorry, or, or how it happened. The reality is that there was something supernatural that took place, that there was darkness over all of Jerusalem for three hours. So the point isn't how that happened. The point that we should be concerned with or, or ask, the, the question we should be asking is not how did that happen, but why did that happen? Why was there darkness for three hours? Uh, let's just say this. Can we, understand, can we come to the conclusion that God is God over all creation. And that when, when God created humanity, he didn't just create us to be a part of communi- uh, creation, he created us to be partners with him in creation. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, if you recall, when God formed Adam, he gave him a responsibility over creation. He said, go name every animal I've created. He became a partner with God in creation. But when he became a partner with God in creation, when Adam and Eve were told to to care for the garden in Genesis chapter three, in Genesis chapter two, when Adam sinned and Eve sinned in Genesis three, their sin was more than just immoral behavior. Their sin had ramifications on all of creation. I think sometimes we reduce sin to just have behavioral effects, but when we look at at sin biblically, we understand that sin has affected everything. It it has affected the the landscape of creation. It's it's affected nature even. Some would, would point to natural disasters and say, what kind of God or how can a good God allow natural disasters? But, but when we look back at the garden, we can say this, even natural disasters are a result of sin. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord said, you have now brought curses upon yourself. And what were some of those curses? Well, a few of them that that we see right in that Genesis 3 account is this. uh, There is pain in childbirth. It used to be where like Eve would have just sneezed and a baby would have popped out. But now, because sin... It doesn't just affect behavior. It doesn't just affect the way we think. It affects all of creation. It, it affects all things natural. The Lord even said that, that now, Adam, when you tend to the garden, some think that, that as a result of, of sin, now we have to work. No, there was work in the garden before there was sin. But he said now, instead, instead of it all being fruitful and, and always seeing fruit of your labor, now there's gonna be thorns and thistles because you have allowed sin to enter into the entire world. Oftentimes we think our sin only affects ourselves, but friend, f- sin is far rooted in a lot of things. It is more than just affecting you, it affects everything. And and, and the reason why we see the sun forbidding to shine is because I believe the sun's refusal to shine was nature's way of mourning with God. All of creation experienced the ramification of sin. And I think now when, when, when creation is, is taking note of, of the perfect son of God dying, it is their way of mourning. All of creation experienced the author of life tasting death on the behalf of all humanity. This was the son's way, I believe, the son's way of mourning the son, if that makes sense. 
a second view that, we, that, that I would see here is, um, if, if you recall, at the first Passover, now this is a, sec- this is a Passover, Jesus died during Passover, uh, a celebration, a feast that they would have uh, every year in Jerusalem. They would recall the time when uh, the Lord delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. And if you recall in that account in Exodus, the first Passover, uh, do you remember that there was plagues with that? Do you remember the 10th plague, the 10th plague, the final plague being the the death of the firstborn son? Um, But did you know this, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. And we believe that that this was a complete reversal of what happened back during that first Passover. Now Christ was being the accomplishment of what we saw. There was darkness for three hours, the ninth plague, and the 10th plague being the death of the firstborn son. God delivered up Jesus, not just as a sacrificial lamb, but he was also the firstborn son that would die because of sin. So it's just beautiful to see that there is a, a, a completion happening here, that the son was, was doing two things. It was almost reversing what we saw at the first Passover, and Jesus was now that sacrificial lamb for us. But the second thing we see is that the son in all of creation is mourning on behalf of what was happening. How, how, do, we, how do we know that? Well, if we look at, at Matthew's account, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, if we look at Amos, Amos kind of gives a, a prophecy there. In Amos chapter eight, verse nine and 10, it tells us this. And this is 780 years before Jesus. It says this, and on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and, that, and the end of it like a bitter day. So it's literally, it's, it's a prophecy that is being fulfilled through Christ in that moment. The second thing that we notice, so the first thing is that the sun uh, was not shining, but the second thing that we see is that a veil was torn or a curtain was torn. Look at this, in, in Luke 23, verse 45, in our text, it tells, tells us this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, what's the purpose of a curtain? What's the purpose of a veil? Anybody have curtains in their home? Hopefully you do. You just don't want the whole world to see what's happening on the inside. Uh, uh, the, the purpose of a curtain, the, cur- the purpose of a veil is to simply block out what's happening on the inside to those that are on the outside, right? It, it's, it's a form of, of privacy. A curtain veil has, has one purpose, to create a barrier of separation from one person to another, Right? We, we have this at home, not because we want to be fashionable. I mean, maybe you have curtains that are fashionable, but the reason why you have a, a curtain at home is because when you get home from work and you, you, you just want to run around in your skimmies, you don't want the whole world to see you, right? So it's, it's a form of, of privacy. That's exactly the reason why we have a, a curtain, a veil in the temple. Like, like God is trying to keep one area private from others, He's trying to reserve one area for himself. There are 13 veils or 13 curtains in the temple. And when you look at the temple in Jerusalem, uh, or the temple that was in Jerusalem, there was layers that were built into it. In the first, like the outer courts, you had a, a court of the Gentiles. And this is where anybody who was questioning, anybody who was, was trying to learn more about God, who wasn't a Jew, could come and ask questions and hear teachings about the God of Israel. And then if you get closer to the inside, there was the court of women, and this is where the women went. Um, and that's where they asked questions and where they celebrated. At that time, society wasn't as, as equal as it is today. The women were considered lesser citizens, so that's where they were able to worship slightly better than a Gentile. If you got even closer, that's where the priests went, and the, and the priests could, could ask questions. And there was a veil of separation between every single person 
the priest could go there in, the, in that third section and they can offer up sacrifice. But then the closer you got, there was steps and there was 12 steps leading up to a place known as the holy place. And this is where um, sacrifices were made. And this is where ancient relics and, and, and some of the, the, the things that Israel brought with them every time they were um, used by God. They had Aaron's staff in this area. Um, but even as you got closer, there was another veil that separated the holy place from what is known as the most holy place or the holy of holies. And every single year, there was only one person who was holy enough, who was righteous enough to go into that place, and it was the high priest. And it was usually, there was usually an order of high priests, but they would draw straws and, or they would, they would cast lots and, and whoever the lot fell to, that priest would have been known as the one who was selected by God to come into the whole, most holy place and to offer sacrifice for the cleansing of the sins of that priest and of the entire nation once a year on the day of atonement. But in the temple, there were veils of separation. Your behavior and oftentimes things that you couldn't even, uh, you couldn't even uh, handle or things that you couldn't even affect, uh, whether your gender or, or where you were born, they were a veil of separation. That was religion as we knew it. But the reason why we see a veil being torn is because we know that that is the moment God said there is gonna be no more separation. There's gonna be no more differences that we, we once had that, that you had to look this part or, or be this, this type. or like there, there is no more of that, that God tore the veil. And religion sets itself up on this understanding that, that, that you have to, to, to be righteous and anointed and holy in order to go to God. But, but here's the beauty. God tearing the veil was his way of saying that religion would no longer be a means of separation. There would be no separation and that, and that humans would no longer have to attain holiness to approach God, but instead the inverse would happen. We in our filth and in our sin would go to God and he would then make us holy. God was the one who tore the veil. And, and it's only because Jesus was the one who was offering himself as a sacrifice to say now everybody could come into my presence. There is no more separation. A veil communicates that, that, that there is separation and now Christ was the one who would completely eradicate that from our understanding. But it was God that tore the veil. How do we know that? Luke's gospel doesn't tell us that specifically, but the implication is there. In fact, when we look at Matthew chapter 27, more detail is given. Matthew 27 verse 51 uh, tells us this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Uh, if the veil was torn from the bottom to the top, that would signify that it was a human that tore that veil. But because it was torn from the top to the bottom, it had to have been an act of God. This, this veil that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place was, was at least 12 feet tall. And yet God was the one who was saying, because Christ, because he accomplished what we could never accomplish, now there is no separation. Now we can all approach God. Now we don't have to go through a purification ritual and, and wash our hands in a certain basin and, and offer up sacrifice. And, and now Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. And we, because of Christ, now have privilege to enter into the presence of God. So if you came to church today looking up because you're afraid that the church roof is gonna fall on you because you're not righteous and you're 
you're not holy, I'm here to tell you Jesus has made us holy. And by our acceptance of what Christ has accomplished upon the cross, we are now made righteous. It's all because of Christ and not because of our works. It's not by deeds. It's simply because of the grace of God. And all we simply have to do is accept what Christ accomplished on the cross. And that in and of itself makes us righteous. So if you were looking around saying, I'll never attain holiness like that guy or I'll never be as clean as that girl, I'm here to tell you that just simply looking up to Jesus makes us righteous. He tore the veil. He made a way. Thank you, Lord. So in Luke 23, verse 46, we see that, that every, everything is responding. The sun is responding to the work of Christ. It, it's, it's forbidding to shine. Even, even we see that the veil is being torn and now we see Christ cry out. And, and as I was pre- praying and, and studying for this week, I, I noticed a couple of observations in the statement of, uh, of Jesus. This is his triumphant statement upon the cross. I, I know it's a, it sounds morbid to think that Christ would, would celebrate upon the cross and I don't think he's smiling here. I, I think he is in pain and I know he's wincing, but, but I believe that in the midst of all the pain, he is celebrating what, what, what he had accomplished. And we see him say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now there's two observations I made as I was studying. The first one is this. Jesus, notice this, Jesus was always focused on the Father. Always focused on the Father. I think sometimes you and I, we, we use Father, uh, our God, as, as a last resort. If, if there is something that is too heavy for our shoulders, then, then we'll turn to God. But here we see Christ always, always focusing on his father. This is the final statement that we see Luke record uh, Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But did you ever ask yourself what was the first words we see Luke record? They're actually in Luke chapter two. And I believe that Christ, his focus has always been on God. Let's read this passage together really quick in Luke chapter two, verse 41 through 50. It says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. Now, I I think it's beautiful to see that the first words we have recorded of Jesus are during Passover, and the final words we have recorded of Jesus are on Passover. It's almost like this this perfect uh, completion happening here. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to custom. After the festival was over, we usually last about a week, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem but they were unaware of it. I like how Luke is just sugarcoating it. Like, oh, Jesus just stood back and the parents were unaware of it. You know what happened? Jesus was like, see your parents, I'm staying around. And I don't believe that was his way of being like a, a teenage angst. I don't think he was like a preteen just struggling with, with submitting to his parents and he wasn't like listening to Green Day all day. Like, like I, I believe this was, Jesus wasn't being angsty. Uh, uh, something else is happening here. And let's keep reading this. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. If you feel like you're a bad parent sometimes, <laughs> at least you didn't leave the Son of God at church, okay? Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. It must have been a group of at least 40 people. Like, listen, if you have, if your job is to take care of the Son of God, like, you'd, you'd think you'd, you'd make sure he's, he's in your group. So if you've ever felt like you're an incredible, like you're, you're a horrible parent, that you, you're messing up, you're failing, Mary messed up too, guys, okay? Um, 
But after three days, they found him in the temple. It took them like four days. to, to, to they, they couldn't find Christ. Uh, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers because he was only 12 years old. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? She's putting it on him, right? Like, Jesus, why'd you do this? Right? She's, she's trying to make sure that DCF doesn't get called. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. In verse 49, and this is what I'm, I'm trying to convey here. Look what he says. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? I'm focused on my father. They did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus was saying, his first words that, that we see recorded from the words of Jesus that he is focused on the mission that God had given him. His very last words that we see recorded are, are, are talking to the Father. Jesus was focused on the Father. In fact, everything we see Jesus doing was in consideration of his Father. Do you remember what, what, what Jesus said as one of his purpose, purpose statements? When Jesus was uh, talking in John chapter 6, verse 38, look what he says. He said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who is him? He's talking about his father. When fighting temptation, look what he says. He says, man does not live on bread alone. The scriptures say that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. And then we also see in Matthew 26, when he was facing doubt, Jesus was in the garden agonizing over what he was about to, to accomplish on the cross. He prayed not once but twice. Look at Matthew 26, verse 39. He went on a little further, and now, now he's praying in the garden. He brought his disciples, and this is the day he gets arrested, and he's going to the cross. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Verse 42, then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus's focus was always, how does this affect my God? How does this affect my father? And friends, I believe the observation for us, the, the application for us is that if we could be individuals, and I believe God's desire for us is to be individuals that say, how do my decisions, how do my actions, how do the words that I say, how does that affect the father? If we could just be people who, who learn to be like Christ and at his weakest point, not just at his, 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 his most adulation, the, the most excitement he's ever experienced, but he had at his lowest point on the cross, he is still focused on the Father. Many times we try to reduce God to this magic eight ball that we shake to just ask questions or, or we consult from time to time or we view him as a doctor that we visit a couple times a year when we can't seem to fix ourselves. And while God certainly wants us to go to him and, and he never wants, he'll never turn us aside, if we are going to be the people Christ has called us to be and even died for us to become, if we are going to get the most out of the life God has given us, then I'm convinced God isn't just someone that we throw up a prayer to from time to time. He needs to be our constant consideration. God needs to be the person that we, we live for. He must increase and I must decrease. 
He needs to be our focus. He needs to be the one that fuels us. When we wake up in the morning, we should say, God, how can I glorify you greater today? How can I live for you better, Lord? Where you go in life and how far you get there depends on the fuel that you use. And my prayer is that God becomes that fuel for us. The same way Christ committed his spirit to his Father. I believe that our responsibility on this Palm Sunday, as we work our way to Easter, as we wait for Easter, that we ask ourselves every single morning, Father, how can I focus on you greater today than I did the day before? How can you be my emphasis? The second thing we see is that Jesus always trusted the Father. Notice what he said. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When we hear the word commit, maybe to you that sounds like your, 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 your favorite college athlete committing to a, a team or a, a student committing to a college or, or, or making a commitment to a person. You say, I promise I'll be there. But, but what that word commitment means in, in the biblical languages is to entrust something precious into the care of someone else. God was, uh, Jesus was, was specifically saying, God, I, I'm entrusting in these final moments and these, these points of fear, I'm entrusting my spirit into your hands. You gotta remember, Jesus was on the cross for six painstaking hours and three of them were in complete darkness. Insults were being hurled at him. He experienced abuse. He was flogged. He, I mean, Jesus experienced all the things that he could ever experience that were horrific And yet we see him say a word of trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If we were going to be thinking about this in the natural, we would say if there was ever a time where Jesus would have been justified for being angry at God, it would have been at this moment. He is perfect. He is righteous. And and if, if anybody was going to logically get angry at God, it would have been at this moment. But instead we see Jesus doing the exact opposite and saying, God, I trust you. Friend, I don't know where you are this this morning. Maybe you're walking through something that completely has caught you by surprise. Maybe your relationship didn't go the way you wanted. And if there was ever a point where you could shake your fist at God and say, God, why is this happening? My prayer is that we would take a cue from the book of Jesus and see that in his moment of greatest fear, struggle, and worry, and I'm not saying God doesn't want us to go to him when we're angry and pretend that everything is right, But I believe that Jesus, although in agony, still trusted the Father. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, Jesus didn't lose his life. He placed it and entrusted it into the care of God. Jesus was placing his spirit into the hands of God. I believe that there are some of us in this place who you have been told that it's only when things become unbearable that you bring those situations to God. Maybe you've been raised under the, the frame of thinking that, that, that God has given me broad shoulders. God, God blesses those who help themselves. Maybe, maybe that's what you've falsely told yourself, but, but I'm here to tell you that, that God wants us to go to him in every situation. He doesn't want to just be someone that we, we, we throw up a Hail Mary to, like when, we're, when things are getting desperate. He wants to be someone that we run to for every situation and every need, someone that we rely on constantly, that he is someone that we can trust. In fact, Proverbs tells us this way. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all of your ways, all of your ways. 
not just the arduous, difficult ones, but in everything that you do, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. God's desire for us this Palm Sunday is to, with the same focus, the same trust that Jesus displayed upon the cross as he was making a way for all the world to come into the presence of God, his desire was that we too would become people that learn to focus on him and learn to trust him. I'm gonna invite the band up and I want us to spend some time asking ourselves this specific question. In what way can I focus on God greater? Maybe, maybe you are face to face with a, a life change. Maybe you're, you're facing a move or a job change or, or maybe there's, there's, there's transition and just happening in your family. My prayer is that we would be people that that learn to focus on the Father. How does this decision, how, how does where I'm at right now affect what God's desire is for my life? Or perhaps how, how can I trust God in a deeper way? I believe that there's someone in this place that God is calling you to trust him in ways that you've never trusted him before. And you're waiting for things to come up and make sense logically and the Lord is saying, trust me. Jesus was on the cross Right, rightfully, that could have been a point where he would have been upset with God. But instead he said, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. I trust you, God. Can we just take a moment and respond to what the Lord is saying through Jesus? We are thankful for the celebration that we have the victory that we have, the freedom that we've been given because of the work of Christ, that that veil was torn, that we can come into his presence. But I believe it would be a shortcoming of ours if we didn't, at this time, ask the Lord what areas there are in our lives that we can focus on him better. Father, may you be our focus. Lord, it's too easy for us today to rely on our own strengths, our own talents, our abilities. And Lord, we know you want us to work hard. We're not saying that, that we shouldn't work hard and that we should only rely on you. Father, if there's any of us in this place, and I'm sure if we were honest, we would all agree to this, that we could focus on you even greater. Not out of peer pressure, not out of guilt, not out of fear of repercussion, but simply because we want to please the one who created us. As we look at this account, we see the son responding to the death of the son of God. We see the temple, the place of where the presence of God was addressing this, responding to the death of Jesus. We see the centurions and the, the Jews and even the followers of Christ all responding 
And I pray that the response that we would understand that we need to make this morning is one that says, God, I want to focus on you more. I want to trust you greater. Because you make a promise to us that if in all our ways we trust you, we acknowledge you, you will make our paths straight. Father, forgive us for the times that we make things more difficult than they need to be because we choose to trust ourselves or trust people. Maybe some of us in this place make decisions based on our own preference or maybe the perceptions that others will have. Or maybe we try to please the people around us. May we be more focused on you, God. That we would take a play out of the playbook of Jesus at this time and learn to trust you and to put our faith in you to put our focus on you that if we choose to walk with you that you will lead us by still waters that you will guide us and direct us that even in those moments that we walk in the deepest valley you promise to still be with us Let us focus on you. Let us place into your hands and trust into your hands everything that we have, everything that we are, all the decisions that we make. Martin Luther said that I've held many things in my hands. I've held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Friend, what situation do you need to place into the hands of Jesus? Can we stand together in this place as we respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing? Every eye closed, every head bowed. I just want us to Just be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. If there's anybody in this place that would say, you know what, Pastor, I uh, I want to trust God. I've been leaning on my own understanding, my own wisdom for far too long. But I want to trust Jesus. I understand that He made a way where there was no way that he was the one that that tore the veil of separation. That now he doesn't call us to religion, but now he says that there is access to me because of what Christ has accomplished. And all God asks of us is to freely receive what he has accomplished. That we turn from ourselves and we entrust into his care everything that we are. Friend, if you would make that declaration and say, you know what, I've trusted myself for too long. I've I've relied on my own strength for too long and now I want to rely on God. If that is your decision, with every eye closed, every head bowed, if that's your desire, would you just go ahead and lift up your hands so I know who to pray for? Yes, God. Yes, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, you see these hands. You see our hearts. You know exactly where we are. Father, there is no 
In this church, we don't have to pretend to make face and save face and act like we got all things together. We can be honest before you and admit that we need you. If we're honest with ourselves, we would admit to you that we are more frail and fragile than we would like to admit. That we don't have to keep up the facade of having all things together at all times but that we can look to Jesus and see him as our example. That even in his most frail state of life, at his lowest point, when he took upon the most pain he'd ever experienced, the most abandonment that he would ever experience, he still chose to focus and trust you. This morning, this afternoon, we display and say the exact same thing. At MWC, we choose to focus and trust you. Thank you, God, that because of the work of Christ, there is now access to the Father. That there is no veil of separation any longer. And if there is one, or if we feel there is one, it's because we have allowed one to go up. We have placed it up there because you have torn it down. So, Father, we come to you understanding that we don't go to you when we're holy and we've earned our spot, but we come to you knowing that in our frailty, in our failures, in our sin, we go to you and you make us whole. If you are thankful for the work of Jesus, will you say amen? Will you give him a hand this morning? Thank you, Jesus for what you have accomplished. Friends, we serve an awesome God. He loves us. He cares for us. Man, I pray that this Easter, God would do some great things in us and through us. Uh, Man, don't forget to grab one of those Easter cards at the Welcome Center. Invite three people. Pray over them this week and just pray that God will give you the strength, the courage to invite someone to church because we believe God is changing lives in this place. Amen.